The Stream of Time. Hello, and welcome back to the history podcast, The Stream of Time. I'm your host, Elliot the Historian. After the brief foray into the 14th century, we return this episode to the ancient world as I discuss Alexander the Great. Before I talk about Alexander the Great, I want to talk a bit about talking about Alexander the Great. Alexander is a difficult figure to pin down. Was he an explorer, a conqueror, a violent megalomaniacal psychopath? And how should we study him? Should we just look at his achievements and call it a day? Should we try to psychoanalyze him 2,300 years after the fact? Further complicating matters is the ever-present danger in history to heroize or even mythologize the figure or figures in which we are speaking, be it Alexander or his father Philip or Julius Caesar or Napoleon. This isn't even a new problem I'm describing. The Roman historian Plutarch, writing in the 1st and 2nd centuries AD, described the difficulty in outlining Alexander the Great in beautiful prose. I am writing biography, not history, and the truth is that the most brilliant exploits often tell us nothing of the virtues or vices of the men who performed them. While, on the other hand, a chance remark or a joke may reveal far more of a man's character than the mere feat of winning battles in which thousands fall or of marshalling great armies or laying siege to cities. When a portrait painter sets out to create a likeness, he relies, above all, upon the face and the expression of the eyes and pays less attention to the other parts of the body. In the same way, it is my attention to dwell upon those actions which illuminate the workings of the soul, and by this means, to create a portrait of each man's life. I lead the story of his greatest struggles and achievements to be told by others. So what are we others trying to tell his story to do? What are we to make of a man whose very name, Alexander the Great, evokes a certain idea in both the people teaching about him and learning about him. Well, for one thing, just calling these issues out is a step towards avoiding them. Acknowledging from the start that Alexander was a complicated man helps us to set up some context. And while Plutarch specifically said he was writing a biography, not a history, I think we can do a little of both to understand both the man and the history surrounding him. Furthermore, we can get a bit of insight into at least one of the factors motivating Alexander. The word that keeps popping up in the ancient author's writing about Alexander is pothos. Pothos translates to something like a longing for, or desire, or even regret. A good way to understand this word is to think about the Greek epic poem, The Odyssey. The Odyssey is about a man named Odysseus trying to get home after over a decade away. His voyage ultimately takes 20 years. The word pothos is used to describe what Odysseus feels for his home. The same word is used by ancient historians and biographers to describe Alexander's motivation to explore and conquer. And while we should always look at ancient authors with scrutiny, I'm inclined to think they hit the proverbial nail on the head with this one. Alexander seems to have had a fundamental need to go further, and while unquenchable thirst for power does describe some conquerors in history, Napoleon Bonaparte comes to mind, 
I don't think this accurately describes Alexander and his travels. Alexander's image had another important advantage that bears mentioning. He died relatively young, before his 33rd birthday. He died before he could make a serious mistake that would cost him his image. We will never know what would have happened had Alexander lived. Would he have conquered more territory? Would his empire have stayed together in one whole? These are questions we can't answer. Anyway, with this context set, I think we can begin to get into some details about Alexander. Alexander was born in 356 BC to the Epirian princess Olympias and the Macedonian king Philip II of the Argead dynasty. Philip had married Olympias in one of his several political marriages. Polygamy was not an uncommon practice among Macedonian rulers as they attempted to establish political ties, and while Philip had more than one child from these several unions, it's clear that Philip had intended for Alexander to be his heir from the start. Alexander was exposed to a healthy dose of military tradition. For example, his father trusted Alexander's military acuity enough to have him play an important command role in the Battle of Chironea when Alexander was just 18. Philip was a military genius, and the Battle of Chironea was a crucial battle against the Greeks. He wouldn't have appointed Alexander as a commander if he didn't genuinely think he could succeed, which is exactly what Alexander did. Alexander was also exposed to philosophical tradition. His tutor was none other than the great Western philosopher Aristotle, who in turn was a student of that other great Western philosopher Plato. Alexander took Aristotle's education to heart. Aristotle was big on the idea of the city. You may have heard the quote, man is a political animal, attributed to Aristotle, but that's not quite the right translation of what Aristotle was trying to convey. The original Greek he used was zoon politikon. The latter word related to the Greek word for city, polis. What Aristotle was really trying to say was that human beings are city-ish animals, that we function best in social groups such as cities, using agreed-upon laws and social rules. Now, I understand that I'm grossly oversimplifying Aristotelian philosophy, but what's important is that Alexander had a solid philosophical foundation, and the reason I'm focusing on the city is that Alexander seems to have taken this lesson to heart and founded more than 20 cities. He actually named 70 cities Alexandria after himself. As you may remember from the last episode, one of his father Philip's innovations was a heavy cavalry group called the Companion Cavalry, in Greek, Hetairoi. This was a group of soldiers on horseback that were highly trained in working together to provide a fast-moving group of shock troops that could shake up an enemy army, allowing the anvil of the Macedonian infantry to push forward. Because of this, Alexander was trained from a young age in horse riding and was a master horse rider. He would go on to lead the companion cavalry, usually at the front of the formation, often at great risk to himself. In fact, one of antiquity's most famous horses was Alexander's horse Bucephalus, who accompanied him on his journeys. Alexander truly loved Bucephalus, and when Bucephalus died in 326 BC in modern-day Pakistan, Alexander named a town after him, Alexandria Bucephalus, modern-day Falia, again in Pakistan. Now, while I did say that Philip clearly intended to make Alexander his heir, 
That doesn't mean it was all fun and games and a happy family. In fact, at one point, Philip tried to actually kill Alexander in a drunken rage. It was at Philip's wedding to a new wife, Cleopatra, not that Cleopatra. Alexander protested during the wedding banquet and so incensed Philip that Philip tried to stab Alexander. Fortunately for Alexander, Philip was so drunk that he fell over just getting out of the chair and moving towards Alexander. Plutarch tells us that Alexander said, See there, the man who makes preparations to pass out of Europe into Asia, overturned in passing from one seat to another. Alexander and his mother Olympias fled Macedon for about six months until it was clear that Philip still planned to make him his successor. I should also mention that Alexander had an older brother, Philip III Aridaeus. This brother seems to have had some sort of unnamed learning disability that probably saved his life, as Alexander didn't see him as a threat and let him live, although Alexander did bring him on campaign to ensure he couldn't be used as a political pawn while Alexander was away. Alexander's father Philip was assassinated in 336 BC. The ancient biographers and historians are undecided on whether Alexander was responsible, his mother, or if we are to believe the official story, that it was just a disgruntled bodyguard acting on his own. So I'm not going to even speculate. What we do know is that Philip was assassinated, and Alexander became king. Philip's plan had been to take on the Persian Empire. Since Xenophon wrote his Anabasis seven decades earlier, the Greeks had gotten the idea that the Persian Empire wasn't nearly as strong as it had been a century before. And if someone could just get well enough organized, they could take on the Persian Empire in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, to liberate the Greek cities there that had been under Persian rule. Philip had taken steps to cross over into Asia Minor. In fact, he had already sent his general Parmenio to set up preparations when he was assassinated. Alexander had every intention of taking that task on as well. The problem is that the areas that had fallen under Macedon's rule due to Philip's conquests saw the death of Philip as an opportunity to break away from Macedonian control. Greek cities such as Athens, Thessaly, and Thebes went into revolt. Border tribes such as the Thracians similarly started causing trouble. They assumed that a young 20-year-old king, just taking over, would not be competent enough to handle revolts in his kingdom. They could not have been more wrong. In 336, Alexander marched south to Greece, through Thebes and Thessaly, so quickly that he surprised the Greeks into submission without a fight. For example, we have an anecdote that on his initial march south, he found a Thessalian army waiting for him in a pass between Mounts Olympus and Ossa. Instead of engaging them head-on, he snuck over Mount Ossa at night, and the Thessalian army woke up the next morning to find Alexander behind them. They surrendered almost immediately. He marched further south and encountered no more resistance. He then turned back in 335 BC to the tribal areas such as the Illyrians and the Thracians. While this was not bloodless, he made short work of these tribes. The problem is while he was on campaign up north, the Greeks rose in revolt again as a rumor that Alexander had been killed broke out in Greece. The city of Thebes was at the center of this rebellion, and when they refused to negotiate with Alexander, he sacked it ruthlessly, which seems to have had the effect he was shooting for, which was to set an example to other Greek cities. 
Despite all this, I should make something clear. Alexander did not declare himself king, in Greek, Basileus, of Greece. He was king of Macedon, but his title in Greece was something along the lines of Supreme General of the Allied Forces in the campaign against the Persians. In Greek, Strategos Autokrator. Alexander knew that the freedom-loving Greeks would have a difficult time accepting a king, and as long as they understood Macedon called the shots, he could get what he needed from them, which was Greek soldiers, without too much trouble. As we learn more about Alexander, we'll see that he played a balancing act of titles as he conquered more territory with more diverse sets of religious, social, and political customs. But why did Alexander bother with the Greeks in the first place? For a couple reasons. First of all, he was going to be focusing on the Persian Empire, a huge and risky military undertaking. He needed to make sure that as he ventured further from home, that home was secure. At the very least, he needed to make sure the most important Macedonian profit centers were secure. Second of all, Alexander needed Greek manpower. Much of his army consisted of Greek soldiers. Losing access to Greece would mean losing access to a massive and important recruiting ground. He left a man named Antipater in control of Macedonia. Antipater had been a trusted general of Alexander's father, Philip, and had even had experience in running Macedon as regent when Philip went on campaign. Furthermore, Antipater had been practically a surrogate father to Alexander and was trusted implicitly by Alexander. So for all these reasons, it made perfect sense for Alexander to appoint Antipater to run Macedon in his absence. And so, with Greece and Illyria under control, Alexander was able to focus on his real goal, the Persian Empire. And that's a good stopping point for us. Next episode, Alexander begins his campaign that would last 10 years, across half the world, from which he would never return alive. Thank you for listening and see you next time on The Stream of Time.